Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I want to tell you my secret now. I see dead people. Silent Green is people! No. I am the father. What's in the box? You maniac! You blew it up! Damn you all to hell! Hello, and welcome to Slate Spoiler Specials. I'm Sam Adams, the senior editor at Slate, and today we are spoiling The Haunting of Bly Manor, the Netflix adaptation of Henry James' The Turn of the Screw. Joining me to talk about it is Slate's book critic, Laura Miller. Laura, hello. Hi, Sam. Let's start off in traditional fashion. Uh, what did you think of The Haunting of Bly Manor, Laura? I didn't love this. There were parts of it that that I admired. I thought that the performance of the little boy who plays Miles, Benjamin Evan Ainsworth, was really remarkable because he had to switch between being a child and being a child sort of possessed by an adult man. And I do like Victoria Pedretti, who plays the Danny governess character. But I just, I don't know. I, I feel like my ability to assess it is so dominated by my love of the novella, the Henry James novella, Turn of the Screw, that it's based on. And I had a hard time getting past the ways that it wasn't quite as interesting as that book. It's a classic problem. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we should mention right up front that this is sort of, I guess, a, a sequel or a continuation of The Haunting of Hill House, which was on Netflix two years ago. Uh, has the same creator, Mike Flanagan, and the same basic premise, which is he's taking sort of an iconic, really foundational work of horror. That was the Shirley Jackson novel. In this case, it is. So technically, the credit is based on the work of Henry James. It's a, probably, I don't know, 75% the turn of the screw. Um, and then he works in some of James's other ghost stories and goes off in his very much in his own directions, which Hillhouse did as well. But this is a little bit more of a this is a little bit more of a melting pot, I guess, of Henry Jamesiana. I liked Hillhouse a lot, but it was a kind of a strange thing to explain because I thought the whole thing worked very well, while at the same time a lot of the parts didn't. Like I didn't actually think most of the performances in it, for example, were really like any good at all. Carla Gugino was great. And then other than that, it really fell off very dramatically. This, I feel like, works in a lot of smaller parts, work much better. Um, you mentioned Benjamin Evan Ainsworth, who plays Miles. I think Victoria Pedretti, who plays the main character named Danny Clayton in this adaptation, is great. Um, Tania Miller, who plays Mrs. Gross, the, the housekeeper, is wonderful. There's a number of cast members who carry over from Hill House in this. Um, Oliver Jackson Cohen is one of them. He plays Peter Quint in this. And he was so, I thought, so bad <laughs> in Hill House. I mean, in part because he was he's English and he was saddled with this very like kind of bad American accent. I mean, he's saddled with a Scottish accent in this one, but I think pulls that off a lot better. And it just really... Well, I would should say eight ninths of it works very well for me. We'll get to the other one ninth in due time. And, and Sam, you've got to admit there are some bad fake English accents in this one. I, I mean, I think they're 
they're not terrible for the most part. There are a couple bad ones, but I don't think they're as bad as like the fake American accents in, in yeah. Hell House. Yeah. So I, I and I did in some cases have to kind of look up like who, you know, some of the fake accents were like, I was suspicious of some. And then in some cases I was suspicious that they turned out to be wrong. So <laughs> uh, I think they were maybe just, you know, English actors putting on a different English accent. Tell us a little of the history of the turn of the screw to begin with, like why it's such an important novella, both in, in terms of Henry James work and in terms of the history of horror or as the creators of Bly Manor would very much refer to it, gothic romance. The Turn of the Screw is a novella about a governess who takes a job in a remote country house from a man who is the guardian of two small children and who does not want to be bothered at all with any of the details of their care. So she's sort of sent off to sort of raise them and and told not to bother him at all. You know, her only real companion in the place is the housekeeper, a woman named Mrs. Gross, which, who has the same name in, in Bly Manor. And what she learns is that the previous governess had an illicit affair with the gardener. Uh, the previous governess was named Miss Jessel, and the gardener was named Peter Quint. And this is treated as a extremely depraved situation, you know, like that Miss Jessel and Peter Quint are completely corrupt for having this affair, which sort of crosses the boundaries of both class and obviously it's it's adulterous. Um, and this novel was published in the 19th century. So clearly a different standard of sexual morality obtained. But then she finds out that the boy has done something unspecified that was very terrible at school and gotten expelled. And she begins to wonder if the children have been corrupted in some way by their exposure to this couple. And then she starts to see apparitions of the couple. And the really important thing to remember about Turn of the Screw is that it is never clear whether the governess has just lost it out alone in the country by herself obsessing about this illicit sexual relationship and convincing herself that she is the heroine of a, you know, a battle for the souls of these children. And therefore, she is guilty of the tragic conclusion of the novel in one of the child's deaths, or the haunting is real and she simply fails to save him. And that has been hugely influential. I think that, you know, when the novella was first published, it's really not clear what James intended. He didn't really discuss it much. And in one letter, he described it as a pot boiler. So he may have always meant the ghosts to be real. But in the 20th century, when James, in the early 20th century, when James became like this object of worship for all American fiction writers, the possibility that the governess was mad and that the ghosts didn't exist became a very commonly accepted interpretation of the story. But the fact that you can't tell whether she's being haunted or she's losing her mind is is the thing that makes the novella so unsettling now, when we read it now. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today. 
at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. One of the interesting things about Bly Manor is you you watch it and knowing the liberties that uh, Mike Flanagan and his whole team took with The Haunting of Hill House in the first series, which included, among other things, changing the last word of the most famous line from Shirley Jackson's novel, which even as somebody who's very much not a purist throughout adaptations, I found to be kind of a slap in the face. Yeah. But, you know, this one begins with a framing story. It begins with Carla Gugino as the narrator in... I think we eventually find out it's 2007, it's about 20 years after the events of the kind of main story at a wedding in America, kind of sitting everybody down around the fire and, and telling them the story. And that is basically how James's story begins. It's not a wedding, but is it kind of a bunch of travelers at an inn? And so it's kind of like doubly framed. You have a storyteller who's telling this story. The title of the novella comes from her words. It's, you know, ghost stories are, are scary, but you add a child and that is another turn of the screw. And what if there were two children? Uh, yet another. So it's kind of, there's sort of multiple layers of uncertainty there. And it's also written in, and I will defer to you a little bit on the <laughs> description of this style here, but it's written in what I found having just read it. I mean, it, this kind of absurdly ornate style where I found myself like it's an effort just to kind of find the subject of a sentence because it might be <laughs> after like two sets of dashes and five semicolons, like yeah. four lines into it. And I mean, that's just interesting, but kind of absurd. And the only way, the, the, the only rationale I could come up with for that, other than that, just like, this is how Jen Henry James likes to construct a sentence is that either the narrator or the governess or both, there's kind of this extreme class anxiety going on. As you mentioned, like Peter Quint, especially, and Miss Jessel are just supposed to be this, by their very presence, this corrupting influence. The governess refers to their ghost as abominations without really any grounding, like just their mere existence is this kind of malevolent force in the house. And it feels very much like you know, the governess, I think we're led to believe comes from a, you know, fairly sort of like modest background, but she is still kind of, she's like management in the house sort of, and they're, they're more like the help. And there just seems to be like this worry that some sort of poor is going to rub off on her. And so she's either she or the narrator, both are coming up with these absurdly ornate sentences just to kind of prove that they can, you know, as a kind of class signifier. Well, I'm going to stop you right there because that is just how how Henry James writes. Right. It's and actually this is is not nearly as sort of convoluted and elusive as some of his later works. It's it's an acquired taste, most definitely. I mean, the thing that I think is significant for this conversation is that he uh, he avoids stating things directly. He creates almost a space in which an idea or a feeling can occur rather than pinning that feeling or idea or event down. So obviously, when you're reading The Turn of the Screw with 21st century sexual mores, the governess seems super hysterical because she's so horrified uh, by this sexual relationship because the governesses were gentlewomen. They were educated, which meant they were not working class, even if they were poor, whereas gardeners were working class and there's not supposed to be this. I mean, she would be regarded as having degraded herself in a serious way, not just by having sex outside of marriage, but by having sex with uh, a working class man. Um, but 
you know, the, none of a lot of this is not stated directly, and that is just James's technique, which in a way is kind of compatible with certain kinds of ghost stories where because it's not specific, you know, it's not crystal clear and there you know, he's not denoting things, you create this atmosphere of uncertainty which is is more unsettling than things that are explicit. As you wrote in your piece for Slate, where you cover both Hill House and Turn of the Screw and sort of the several various adaptations of them over the years, the kind of psychoanalytic reading of Turn of the Screw is really the one that's predominated. Um, I think the most famous and certainly most influential adaptation of it is uh, Jack Clayton's 1961 movie, The Innocents with Deborah Carr, which is kind of a wonderful movie, but is just nuts and is really, really tied up in the governess's state of mind, her anxieties, her her panic. It does have this sort of, that subjective sense of whether or not the ghosts are real. Every shot of the ghosts in the film, I think except one, is preceded by a shot of her reaction to it. So they're all framed within her. Yeah. And it seems characteristic of, you know, for good or for ill, Mike Flanagan's approach you know, the haunting of blank approach that it just, the show just completely dumps that angle, like right from the beginning. Practically the first thing we see in this adaptation, the main character whose name in this is Danny Clayton, um, her last name given in homage to the director of The Innocents, Jack Clayton. Practically the first thing we see as she is in London, she's an American in London in 1987, going up to her job interview to get this job at Bly Manor. And as she is standing in the street before she's even gone in, uh, a London black cab goes by and she sees in the reflection of its windows um, sort of the figure with these round glasses that are kind of illuminated by this bright light. Maybe it's fire, maybe it's something else. She sees it, we see it. You know, it doesn't feel like a subjective shot. I mean, it's not real in the sense that anyone else can see it, but it's not, you know, she's haunted. She's not nuts. I mean, I think we know that like right yeah. from the beginning. So it's just not interested in that at that ambiguity element. The ambiguities in it are ambiguities of plot. You know, who are these ghosts in Bly Manor? What are they doing? What do they want? Et cetera. And that's a very different approach, I guess. Yeah. And I mean, there's something to be said for the fact that because this, you know, eight episode series is such a long format. You kind of have to have more. I mean, it was the same with The Haunting of Hill House. There's just so much more plot and so much more almost sort of soap operatic, you know, drama in it than there is in the original, partly just as a as a factor of length. I mean, both The Haunting of Hill House and Turn of the Screw are really short texts with not very many characters and not a lot of complex relationships. Do you want to walk us through sort of the dramatis personae of this particular adaptation, Laura? Sure, sure. So Victoria Pedretti plays Danny, who is an, a kind of a an American, I can't remember where she's from, but she has like a vaguely Southern accent, like she might be from Virginia or something. Yeah, they don't say, just America. She's sort of country-ish in a way. She's, she's not a New Yorker or, or a West Coast person. So she's sort of this kind of gormless provincial. And she takes a job taking care of these two kids from – Henry Wingrave, who is their uncle, and they live in this big house, Bly Manor, and in the manor, she meets the housekeeper, Mrs. Gross, 
this guy who comes in to cook, Owen, who doesn't actually stay in the house, but you know, he he's caring for his mother in the village and he's had a sort of cosmopolitan life, but he's taking a break to take care of her. And then there's um Jamie, played by Amelia Eve, who is the gardener. So there is a kind of uh, and, and it emerges her uh Danny's love interest. There is a kind of echo of the Peter Quint, Miss Jessel relationship in the novella by having the governess and the gardener have this affair. But obviously, it doesn't have any of the class issues that it did in the James novel. And Peter Quint is this character who seems to be Henry Thomas's uh, assistant, you know, he's um, at some point someone calls him a butler, but it's not really clear what his title is. He's sort of the jack of all trades guy who's trying to sort of make his fortune, but he's presented as a sort of lower class chancer, you know, like he's trying anything he can to sort of get himself out of the slightly shady family background that he apparently has back in Scotland. Right. So I think what we'll do is, because we obviously can't deal with all nine episodes individually, is The Haunting of Bly Manor, like The Haunting of Hill House, is basically the season kind of splits into around a, a pivotal fifth episode. Um, it's the, you know, the, the, the bent neck lady in Hill House, and in this one, it is called The Altar of the Dead. And we'll talk about that individually. But basically, we have sort of a first half of the season, the first, you know, four episodes bleeding into the fifth that is kind of introducing us to Bly Manor, to this malevolent ghost who we will eventually come to know as the Lady in the Lake. And then also taking us through flashback, the previous stories of particularly Danny, Peter Quint, and uh, Miss Jessel, Rebecca Jessel. Rebecca, I think another nod to the sort of a horror classic, the Daphne du Maurier novel and the, the Hitchcock movie, which are both influences here, and through the, the backstory of, of Miles and Flora. And these are episodes that kind of, we have this menacing presence kind of lurking around the manor. It may be after the children, that it may be inhabiting the children. The children may actually be kind of in on it with the malevolent presence. And Danny, meanwhile, is kind of dealing with her own anxiety. And, you know, as you mentioned, it's not class in this case, but it's basically, I don't know, sort of repressed, internalized homophobia when we finally find out the identity of this figure who's been haunting her for the first half of the season, this man with these lit up glasses, we find out in her flashback episode that this was her childhood sweetheart, lovely fella, who, you know, she'd known since she was, you know, basically Flora's age, eight or 10. He started asking her if she would marry him when they were like, you know, 12 or something, just because kids do, just kind of kept it up. And eventually she says, yes, and they're engaged, and it's kind of only on the eve of their wedding that she's able to come out and tell him um, that actually she's gay and loves him, but has no romantic feelings for him, never will. He, in sort of classic horror movie fashion, gets very upset at this, uh, steps right out of the driver's side of the car and directly into the <laughs> path of an oncoming truck, which yeah. his headlights light up his glasses, and then he gets smashed to the ground and killed. So she is dealing with this guilt over, partly over being gay in the 1980s and not being able to, you know, tell people and also, you know, of having like genuinely lied to and betrayed sort of her closest friend, the person she loves the most in in the world. And so that is, um, and that plays a huge part in the very end of the story, which we will sort of get to in due time. But that is, 
I think a very, very interesting kind of reworking of, of the core of the story to put that right in the middle. Yeah, it is. I, I just, I sort of kept waiting for the dead fiance's ghost to figure in the story again, but it kind of just got dropped. And I don't know, maybe she just got over it. But for someone who was completely, you know, she's got every mirror covered in the room that she's renting in London. She's left America entirely, really fleeing this guilt. And then suddenly she has this relationship and it kind of falls by the wayside. And it's a little, I don't know, you know, I, I, I guess it's interesting and the romance between them is really sweet, but it seems like as a backstory to be a little on the thin side to me. Right. Just, yeah. just because she's so, like she's basically having a nervous breakdown and then all of a sudden it just goes away. That, that's a fair point. And I think in, you know, nine plus hours of, of television, which spends a lot of time on backstory and flashbacks, there you know ought to be plenty of time to flesh out characters, at least kind of the main ones in a satisfying way. But I do think, I mean, I, and I was really, Victoria Pedretti, um, who played the kind of, you know, doomed twin Nell in Hill House, and I thought was... I mean, not one of the worst performances, but certainly not one of the better ones. I thought that was just a very kind of one note thing. It's really, I think, like pretty stunning in this. Um, she's playing, you know, this kind of game 1980s American stonewashed jeans, like American abroad yeah. thing with this real kind of, you know, pluck, but also this really kind of, it's hard not to use the word haunted, but this really kind of haunted quality. I mean, she's just very good at... You know, there are moments where just the idea of kind of a wedding or a funeral or something that obviously triggers the past in her comes up and she'll just, she just kind of goes to bits and will at one point kind of run outside and start hyperventilating, you know, look like she's just about to kind of lose her mind. She she does the essential thing for a ghost story, which is that face when you are seeing something that just like destroys your mind and you can't process what it is, even even before the audience can see it, she does that face really well. So I think, I mean, she carries a tremendous amount of it herself. And having not, you know, thought very much of her in Hill House, I'm really, really impressed with her in this. Yeah, she really does manage to combine this fragility and vulnerability with a sort of determination. And I think the character does make sense a little bit in the way that the governess in the original story does in that she rises to the occasion. Now, the governess in the original story thinks she's rising to this occasion of saving the children, and Danny knows that she's doing it. But nevertheless, you know, she's fragile when she's thinking about her own guilt. And one of the things that the storyline does allow her to do is to save somebody, you know, save the day to a certain extent. You know, she is the kind of character who has trouble defending or protecting herself, but has great strength when it comes to defending others, particularly children. So yeah, it's a it's a moving performance. And and again, the the love affair between her and Jamie is a really nice part of this. It might be my favorite thing in the series. Just it's the most sort of plausible <laughs> relationship among the different romantic pairings that we're given. Yeah, Amelia Eve, who plays Jamie, has this great sort of, you know, kind of guttural, like working class English accent. And she just, she's just such a kind of wonderfully, like, cut the shit 
character. Like yeah, when she could, yeah. you know, she could tell, I mean, she's sensitive to uh, Danny kind of being in distress, but then we'll just also like crack a joke about it or whatever. Like there's no, she's, she just seems to be a character with no hangups whatsoever. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, she's great. Yes. In the original story, there's all this sort of framing of unrequited love where the guy who tells the original story in this kind of, you know, fireside tale telling mode that was a particular way that people used to tell ghost stories and adventure stories in the late 19th and early 20th century. He's telling the story. I think he has like a uh, some documents or a, a diary. I can't. I can't remember. Sam, you've read it more recently. Something like that. Yeah. Papers written by the governess herself telling her story, and he has met her. And the people in the gathering speculate that he was a little in love with her. And then it's also clear that one of the things motivating her is that she was kind of in love with her employer. But he's completely absent, and so she. You know, it's just this, it's this incredibly starved, emotionally starved existence that she has signed on to, probably out of financial need. And that just, that sense of unsatisfied yearning is, you know, of, of all these people in love with someone who's not available in the original, or at least two people who, who feel that way, it is kind of sweetly counteracted by the fact that there is like one or a couple of really wholesome consummated relationships in Bly Manor. So as I mentioned, The Haunting of Bly Manor turns on this kind of crucial fifth episode called The Altar of the Dead, which focuses on Hannah Gross, played by Tania Miller, who I think gives one of the other really great standout performances in this. And, you know, kind of starts off Quite cleverly, I think, as another flashback episode. Okay, this is going to be. This is going to tell us how Hannah ended up where she is. We've we've gotten the sense of her as someone who's just kind of a little off somehow. There's been several references to her kind of not sleeping well, not having an appetite. So we, she is persistently seen in Bly Manor's kind of freestanding chapel, lighting candles at the altar of the dead, or really actually just one candle for a person, but we don't know who it is yet. So this. This is our flashback episode. This is where we're going to find out what Hannah's deal is. And so it starts overlapping with the end of the previous episode, which is the funeral for Owen, who's the cook, played by Rahul Kohli. His mother, who has had dementia and has been dying all along, she has finally died. They're kind of drinking around a campfire to celebrate her life and also discussing kind of the nature of death and memory and how these things kind of get, you know, eaten away and jumbled up. And the fifth episode starts back a few minutes from the end of the fourth, which is something that's never happened before in the show. And that maybe throws you off a little bit, but then, you know, Hannah and Owen are, are kind of drinking by the fire. We've had this sense all along that there's a sort of, you know, unconsummated, unacted upon longing between them. They both kind of seem to be into each other, but neither of them, it's like a remains of the day type situation where one of you, you do, you're just sitting there like, come on, kiss her. Um, <laughs> yeah, but nobody's yeah. doing anything. And so then it, you know, it, then it flashes back to their first meeting when she's interviewing him for the cook job. And you think, oh, you know, this is just another flashback. But there's something a little weird about it because the first shot of Hannah, you know, she seems to know that she's in a flashback. Um, it's not a straight cut to it. There's kind of a yeah. whoosh. Her figure stays in the same place in the frame. And it's like she's been physically transported back. And we find out over the course of the episode, that in fact, Hannah is a ghost. She has been a ghost 
all along in the flashbacks that have been set at Bly Manor, she is a real person. But, you know, the first shot of the show where we where we meet her for the first time where Danny wanders in and she is sitting there. And if you watch this again, it's very clear. She is sitting there kind of looking down a well uh, with miles by her side and straightens up and kind of, you know, looks like she has a little crick in her neck or something straightens out and says, Oh, sorry. I was miles away, miles away. Wink, wink. (laughs) We find out at the end of this episode that the reason she's doing that is because she has just been shoved down the well by miles who is, possessed by Peter Quint at the time. Um, She's lying there at the bottom with her neck snapped, but her ghost has already come back up. Her ghost doesn't know that she's dead, yet has not kind of processed it. And so the ghost has been basically kind of living in not the past, but kind of her own memories, which sort of take on physical form in Bly. They're places that you can inhabit or get uh, tucked away in is the term that becomes used later in the series. And so she has been kind of reliving these moments, some of them pleasant, some of them not so. She occasionally, by the end of the episode, is drifting into other people's memories, um, particularly uh, Peter and Rebecca's memories of their romance. But she's stuck in this. And she's. we find out that she is stuck, and that Peter and Rebecca are stuck, that all of the other ghosts at Bly Manor, some of which we've only seen in shadow at this point, it, Mike Flanagan again does the thing that kind of was very popular, kind of went viral with regard to Hill House, where they're just these little shadowy ghost figures kind of tucked away in the corners or frames all over all over the place through the first five episodes, way more in the second half for kind of sensible, practical reasons. And we will kind of eventually find out who they all are, in at least in small form. They'll at least be given kind of names and faces and things. But she has been, they're all stuck on Blind Manor. They have all been kind of condemned there because they've all pretty much all been killed by or held there by the lady in the lake who is, we finally, I think, get our first like really good glimpse of at the end of this episode when she uh, runs out of the dark, grabs Peter Quint by the neck and snaps it and then drags his body back into the lake. So this is kind of the episode that A, has this big twist in it that she was dead all along, yada, 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 but also tells us that, you know, the ghosts who have been lurking around and just seeming kind of menacing and inscrutable in the first half of the show are all they kind of come into the story as characters now, speaking, interacting with each other, interacting with the characters. And they have, they become characters who they have kind of goals in the present things they want to do. Um, and it really takes the story in a whole different direction. Laura, like, what did you make of this, this episode and particularly kind of where the story goes after this? Well, it's an elaborate concept. I mean, what we eventually find out is that Peter Quint was killed by the Lady of the Lake. He's a ghost. He realizes that he cannot leave Bly Manor, but he also has the ability to possess Miles. So he persuades Rebecca Jessel to kill herself so that she can also become a ghost and the two of them can possess Miles and Flora. And what they offer the children in exchange is that they will be tucked away in memories of their late parents. We also learn that the Uncle Henry, one of the reasons why he stays away from Bly Manor, is that he was having an affair with his brother's wife. And it's Flora's father, right? Yeah, and it's actually Flora's father. He didn't really kill anybody, but Flora and Miles's parents, or rather the, you know, his his brother and, and his sister-in-law went off to India to try to repair their marriage after his brother found out about their affair. And then they died overseas. And 
now he's sort of in charge of these children and he's sort of obsessed with Laura, but he never wants to see her. You know, I, again, he feels guilty the way Danny does, but instead of being haunted by the ghost of, you know, his victims, he for some reason has this grinning doppelganger that comes around to taunt him. And this happens to him in London. So it, it you know, it, not all of the supernatural stuff is actually tied to Bly Manor as, as of course, the haunting of Danny is not tied to Bly Manor, but the 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 complicated thing that's that you know I have to admit sometimes I lose the finer threads of the plots in these really complicated narratives, and it's not really clear to me like how the tucking away thing happens and how it can be controlled, like whether Peter and Rebecca are lying to Miles and Flora about being able to tuck them away only in good memories and how exactly they are as powerful as they seem to be. But then we also get the whole backstory of the lady in the lake. She was a 17th century woman. She had this sister to whom she was devoted. Their father died. She married some guy just so that they could hold on to that. She and her sister could hold on to the house, but then she got really sick. And although she had a child, she for some reason was stayed alive through sheer force of will. But then she finally died. <laughs> it just goes on and on and on and on. And all that's left of her is just this kind of jealousy of her sister who ended up marrying her her widower and a desire for her daughter. And that the the haunting that she performs takes the form of coming, you know, being this dripping wet with the kind of um, hair in the face thing that we all remember from the, the ring, right? you know, pacing out of the lake and into the room where the, her daughter slept and then going back again. Like that's her sort of ghost walk and that she doesn't actually really have much of a mind or intention anymore. It's just this kind of habitual motion that she somehow, like whoever is in her way, she grabs them by the throat and drags them back into the water. Right. Well, let's talk about, because we've, you know, you mentioned kind of the Lady in the Lake's backstory. So let's talk about that eighth episode, which is called The Romance of Certain Old Clothes, which is titled and a kind of general idea taken directly from another James story. And this episode, barring the kind of beginning and, and end of it, um, as you mentioned, kind of takes place in the 1600s. It is all shot in black and white. Um, this is where I think we get the dodgiest English accent in the entire. Um, <laughs> it centers on, you know, Viola, who becomes the Lady in the Lake, played by Kate Siegel, who's another Hill House alum and also uh, creator Mike Flanagan's wife and her sister Perdita. Katie Parker. And uh, yeah, so Viola, we finally find out, becomes the lady in the lake. She is this kind of spurned woman who is eventually kind of murdered by her own sister out of in a purported act of mercy, and then kind of gets back at her by coming back as a ghost and, and strangling her, and then just kind of goes ham on Bly Manor for the next <laughs> 300 years. It's just, you know, she kind of gets confused, like if people wander into the wrong place, if they try and touch her stuff, which is Peter Quint's uh, terrible mistake. Um, she will kill them. At one point, she kind of forgets who she is, but she has a kind of vague memory that she was a mother, that she had a child. So at one point, she just, you know, there's a child in Bly Manor, and she just picks up the child and takes it back into the lake with her. 
suffocating it, of course. So she loses all memory of who she is. Her face eventually kind of gets melted away, becomes like this kind of melted waxwork, which is the appearance we've seen in the present day. And she just becomes this kind of sort of unthinking, like persistent, uh, you know, longing, heartbreak, you know, failed romance, whatever, embodied. And that's that's kind of what's been haunting Bly Manor all along. The, the thing that bothers me about this idea is that just as The Haunting of Hill House is mostly about mental illness and how the descendants of the mother uh, of the whole Crane clan are, you know, kind of battling their fear that they will go crazy like their mother. And the terror of losing your mind is, is the terror of that of that storyline, um, which is true of Shirley Jackson's novel as well. And in a way, you know, whatever the flaws of Hill House, I feel like in some ways it remains fairly true to the idea of Hill House, which is that the, the, the most terrifying thing is to lose your, your sanity. In this, the, the, you know, we're set up to feel like there are all these characters who are grieving and who feel guilty. There's Danny who feels guilty about her fiance and who grieves the loss of him. And then there's Uncle Henry and who feels guilty about the death of his brother and sister-in-law. And then there are the children who are grieving their parents. And also I think Hannah Gross was close to Miles's mother, so you know she also, and she was abandoned by her husband who cheated on her and left her. So yeah, so she yeah, that. yeah. So there's so there are all these grieving characters, and then, but then we find that the ghost that is sort of the central sort of vortex sucking all these people in is not really grieving. She's just really furious. <laughs> you know, she's an angry ghost, and um. And she's angry in a way that is sort of confusing because she's angry that she died and that her sister, whom she has always seemed to be completely devoted to up until this point, ends up marrying her husband and, and raising her child and then ultimately, in what seems really petty, taking her clothes to sell them to save the house, which is the whole motivation behind her marriage to begin with. I just felt like the character was completely sort of incoherent and not really compatible with the other sort of theme that was set up in the beginning of the series, you know, she's mostly just angry. I mean, she's she she died like she didn't suffer the death of someone she loved, like so many of these other characters. She didn't suffer a loss. She just died because she she couldn't she first she couldn't die. She sort of stayed alive despite having tuberculosis out of just sheer orneriness. And then eventually you know, and this made her incredibly abusive to the sister whom she had previously been devoted to. And then her, the sister finally killed her because she could just couldn't take being abused any longer. So I, I just felt like that story kind of broke the sort of the thematic consistency of the first part of the series. And and the only other character who really has anything sort of similar to Viola's, you know, furious energy is Peter, who's sort of mad at the world because, you know, we see his mother, who clearly is no good, and the father is no good either, showing up and trying to shake him down for money when he's trying to leave his past behind. And he has all this resentment of people who have more than he does. But it's not 
it's it I don't know. I don't feel like it's as deep a feeling as the grief that Danny and Henry and Miles and Flora have. Right. I I yeah, I agree with all of that. I mean, I mentioned at the beginning that I really like eight ninths of this story. This clearly is is the other uh one ninth. I I mean I think this episode is like basically a disaster from start to finish. I mean, I think, you know, the, the black and white is just kind of a silly affectation. I think the, you know, recreation of 17th century, um, that milieu is just looks kind of threadbare and cheap and it doesn't, and the writing is, is so off for that period, or at least what we're used to in representations of, of that period. You know, it is a, it is a story that is about the creation of the ghost, but because of the very leisurely way in which the show is paced. And that means like we go like 30 minutes, 40 minutes with no ghosts in the story that has used the continuing presence and tension of ghosts all along to kind of keep us engaged. So instead we're just left with this very kind of flat, affectless, badly accented melodrama. Not to mention it's like this huge, the ending of the seventh episode is the Lady of the Lake grabs Danny by the throat and starts dragging her into the lake, which again, they repeated at the beginning of the eighth. So it's a huge moment of suspense. And then it's just like, you know, it's like <laughs> the, it's like the Terrence and Phillip episode of, of South Park where they like build up this thing. And then it's like, what if we just gave you like a bunch of like l- sort of l- like languid black and white crap for an hour while you're waiting to find out if Danny gets your neck snapped or not. It just kind of kills everything. It's such a huge miscalculation. Uh, it is very funny to me that there was a, uh, when this movie was sent out to press, this is not, did not happen to me, but there was a bug um, in the way that some press got the episodes where it showed them this one first. And I really like honestly salute any of our colleagues who watched this episode <laughs> first and then went on to watch the second because uh, you would be totally justified in tapping out if you started with this one. So if you're watching at home, don't start with episode eight. I'm really tempted to tell you that you can just skip it um, because the the details of the Lady in the Lake story are ultimately, as you say, kind of not that interesting or even particularly relevant. And it just comes very close to killing the whole thing dead. I think it's a, a huge miscalculation in basically every way. Yeah, I'm trying to think now if it is some kind of adaptation of some other Henry James story. You know, he has so many novels and I can't can't remember one that meets this structure of like the two sisters and then one dies and the other one marries her husband. But there may be one. I could be wrong. But it just seems like such a missed opportunity to sort of stick with what seems to be the theme, which is of people – not being able to let go of their grief for the dead and fully live. And it just is a story about someone who's mad about her clothes. You know, it's just, it's just so petty. <laughs> Don't it touch really, my shit or I will yeah, haunt you for hundreds of yeah, years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. So I do think that, I, and this is, was pretty surprising to me because I really felt like watching this episode, like, oh man, that like they're fucked. Now, like they just, they had seven episodes of like pretty good stuff. You're obviously waiting the whole time for like, what's the explanation is going to be. And then it just felt like they completely blew it. I knew there was an hour, another hour left. And it's obviously eight hours in, you're going to finish the thing, but I was not optimistic at that point. And I feel like the ninth episode really, really redeems it. I mean, let me ask you what you thought first before I go into my spiel. Yeah, I really liked it. Um, you know, there there is it's a, the concept behind it is bizarrely complex and it again has to do with Flanagan's thing of of sort of 
making all of these ghost stories that are fundamentally about loneliness into sort of parables of togetherness. And so Danny sort of saves the day by reciting these words that cause the Lady of the Lake to enter into her somehow so that she's been carrying around this sort of, you know, psychic time bomb where the lady in the lake is eventually going to come back and take over and, I don't know, kill her or kill uh, the people around her or whatever. It's not really clear. And so she goes on to have this life with Jamie. They go to America. They live in Vermont. They, they have a florist stand. They, you know, a floor, a floor shop. They're so happy and they learn from, you know, uh, Owen who tells them that Miles and Flora have been freed of the possession of Peter Quint and Miss Jessel, and they're, you know, living full lives. And Henry has, like, you know, gotten over his thing of, like, both being obsessed with Flora and calling her on the phone just to hear her voice and then hanging up, <laughs> but at the same time, never wanting to see her. And he's actually being a parent to them. And everything is fine, but she again, is afraid that this this uh, monster inside of her is going to come. And so she starts talking about the beast in the jungle, which is another Henry James story, which has a completely different meaning than this. But, you know, they incorporate as sort of like the very end of this story. And then at the very, very end, we find out that she did, in fact, kill herself in order to prevent the lady in the lake or Viola from taking over her and turning her into a psycho who will kill Jamie. And Jamie has just been pining for her, but in this really, you know, not agonized way, <laughs> unlike everybody else in the series. And that the wedding is actually Flora's wedding. And um, Flora doesn't even really remember any of these things that happened at Bly Manor. And doesn't even have an English accent anymore because they've been living in America too long, which is sort of the, yeah. the, the cheat that lets them maybe surprise you with this. Yeah. Yeah. So she just shows up at this wedding and she tells this story that only some of the people there actually know is a, tr is a true story. Right. And we find out that this is, you know, she's been kind of Jamie all along. I mean, I think probably most people have figured this out by then. I mean, the key for me is because, um, you know, Carla Cugino comes in at the beginning and is talking in this, this, you know, very particular kind of, you know, moody British accent. And it, you know, and I, you ask yourself, I mean, I shouldn't ask myself, like, why is Carl Cugino doing this accent? <laughs> and then yeah. the answer to that question is, well, oh, because obviously she must be the grown-up Jamie, because um, she's the well, only other person in the story the, with that accent. Yeah. The middle-aged Jamie, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And then at the very end, we see that she leaves her door open waiting for Danny somehow to come back. Maybe she's inviting this haunting, which... I guess, shows that she has a more wholesome relationship to her grief than the other characters who are sort of recoiling from their haunting. She is trying to be haunted, but apparently is not getting anywhere. I mean, I feel like the, the closing images, which if you go back and watch the first episode, there's a lot of, of circularity in the story. Oh, of, I didn't notice that. Could yeah, you if you, that? The, yeah, basically the closing images are basically exactly the same as the opening images. Um, there's this idea that as Danny is haunted by the lady in the lake, she sees this in her own reflection, um, particularly in water. 
And we can tell that she's kind of losing the battle because she will just kind of sit and like stare into a sink or the bathtub for hours. So after Danny has kind of gone back to Belay and, you know, killed herself at the bottom of the lake in order to, you know, put the lady in the lake to rest, Jamie kind of takes to looking for Danny, for looking for, for her ghost and water. Uh, Jamie tries to do the same, it's you, it's me, it's us mantra to get uh, Danny's spirit to inhabit her. It doesn't seem to have worked, but then she spends, you know, the next... 10 years or however long it's supposed to have been kind of looking for her in these reflections, um, leaving the door to her hotel room ajar, kind of sitting in a, a chair, facing it, waiting for her ghost to appear somehow. And those are the first shots of the series that don't mean anything at the time. It's just like, oh, oh here's this here's this old woman. And it is kind of funny to me that like, in order to make the gothic feeling work, like they have to you know, Carla Gugino's 49. You know, she's not particularly old, but they have to give her like gray hair and make her look like she's yeah. 65 or something. Although yeah. in order for Florida to still be kind of, you know, regular like marriage age in her, you know, late 20s, early 30s, like they can only, you know, age the character up so much. They kind of cheat a little bit <laughs> there as well. But yeah, you do see that these are, you know, that Jamie has kind of stayed faithful to Danny in a way that she is still yeah. kind of keeping her in her heart, um, looking for her reflection in the water. Um, and in fact, like the last, the last shot of the show is her. She is sitting in her chair facing the door. She goes to sleep. And then we see this hand, you know, Danny's kind of creep into frame and place itself on his shoulder. And I, I do think that's like a lovely image. You know, so much of the story is for me, Hill House, among other things, was kind of a story about childhood trauma you know it's it's dealing with the characters as kids when there's this haunting in the house and then when they're adults and it turns out and i love this because there's so many horror movies where it's like oh the kid's in danger but they got away from the ghosts and everything's fine and it has always been like well no everything's not fine that kid is fucked up for the rest of their lives like you don't go through that when you're eight and then forget about it and hill house is kind of a story about how that fucks you up and then you become like a heroin addict and you overdose or you have sleep paralysis because you're haunted by these memories of this thing that happened to you when you were a kid and blind manor is as you mentioned kind of about regret being like stuck in the past being haunted by it unable to get things about it and this is the ending kind of takes jamie to a place not of just forgetting the past, which is kind of the American solution, right? Like you just, nobody has any past to reinvent yourself. Right. You know, it was far away in another country besides the wench is dead. You know, but Jamie instead tries to kind of keep the past with her. I mean, don't get the sense that this has kind of prevented her from moving on. You know, it's more like kind of melancholy or sorrow than it is like Danny's kind of paralyzing grief. You know, and it is a way she has kept, you know, Danny's memory with her. And we have the sense that, you know, Danny has sort of physically or metaphysically stayed with her somehow. Yeah. And I think that's kind of a lovely idea. You know, it's not exactly a, it's not like a horror movie beat to end on. But as as you, you mentioned in your piece, I mean, it's the way Hill House changes um, the end date, the, the, that famous line from Shirley Jackson's novel, Whatever Walked There Walked Alone. And Hill House changes it to whatever walk there walk together. It is a series about the family kind of being reconstituted, albeit on kind of opposite sides of the living dead line. Yeah. But they're all sort of together somehow. And this is is likewise about, you know, a relationship that given the time period could not be a marriage, but was kind of in every other way, kind of, you know, persisting and fi- even even beyond death, finding a way for these two to be together. And that, that struck me, it seems like actually like a very lovely note to end on. Yeah, I mean, I, that relationship is the best thing about 
the series to me. It has almost nothing to do with the ghost story, but I think it's nice that there is this sort of healthy, real love as the sort of counterpoint to all of the messed up relationships in the in the rest of the series. It's just that I, I feel like th- there's so much complexity in, in getting there and that it would have benefited from just simplicity, which I, I don't know, maybe it's a foolish thing to wish for in something as, you know, that's eight hours long. But I do think that it, you know, it's sort of given away by the fact that the voiceover just becomes much much more pervasive in the last half of the series where there's just so much that needs to be explained. And you don't really want to think about it. What you want to think about is Danny's, you know, guilt, Henry's guilt, the grief that they feel for this loss that they feel also feel responsible for, the sort of very pure grief of of Miles and and Flora, the sort of uh, way that Peter and Rebecca sort of clung to this obsessive relationship, and then the counterpoint of of Jamie being able to grieve Danny in a in a in a way that's beautiful and that doesn't cause her a, a torment. You know, she's not tormented, but. Unfortunately, we have in between there, we have this kind of ridiculous Lady in the Lake story that feels like it's from like another movie in some ways. Right. Well, I think that kind of brings us to the end of our haunting here. I want to ask you, Laura, someone who's written, you know, quite a bit about uh, kind of early horror and gothic literature. I mean, if Mike Flanagan has said he's doing, you know, an original movie story next, but is there, if you wanted to sick him on another kind of period classic uh ghost story is there what would you turn him towards next i don't really know i feel like in some ways his what he wants to do is kind of antithetical to ghost stories because ghost stories tend to be short they tend to not be very specific i mean there are tons of great mr james ghost stories but um and and some of them have had amazing short television and, and film adaptations but I think the thing that he wants to do, which is turn everything into a sort of a ensemble, like an epic ensemble piece, is just not that compatible with the things that make a ghost story great to me, which is a kind of a kind of ambiguity that um, is both very creepy and it does define a certain kind of experience. So, uh, you know, hopefully he will come up with this original thing where he's not taking a work and f- completely, you know, just violating it. I mean, like kind I, of stripping, I, I, stripping it for parts really is sort of what he yeah, does. Yeah, exactly. That, that, that's good. I mean, I don't want to sound completely outraged because there is an amazing film version of The Haunting of Hill House and an amazing film version of Turn of the Screw, which I'm completely satisfied with. So it's not like this is the only thing. I mean, it'd be interesting if he could do something like The Little Stranger by Sarah Waters, a modern ghost story, although that has already been adapted. Or maybe even something by Stephen King or Peter Straub. I mean, those 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 writers feel more in line with his. They have a more epic 
sort of bent to them than James or Jackson. And maybe what they, what, you know, there's always like this huge climactic battle in a lot of characters like Salem's Lot or, or any number of Stephen King's stories. And then the famous Peter Straub novel Ghost Story, which uh, was made into kind of a terrible film. They seem more compatible with what he wants to do than these sort of older classics. I hope he does something like that and we get a chance to see him apply this particular angle that he has, which seems to be that ghosts are just like a form of uh, togetherness, you know, like ghosts don't want to leave us. Like ghosts are kind of a good thing if we can all just, you know, realize that the whole point of ghosts is so people don't ever have to be separated. And that's an interesting idea that he should just run with. I don't feel like it's what these stories were originally about and they're not they're not really well suited to that concept. Right. I mean, he is stuck in this very kind of particular uh, kind of, you know, whatever, 20-teens, 2020s conundrum where sort of everything has to be based on IP, even if that IP is like a 130-year-old novella that probably no one watching The Haunting of Bly Manor has ever even heard of. But for some reason, that's you know considered a safer bet for these things. I mean, he did do a Stephen King adaptation last year, two years ago, of of Dr. Sleep, um, the sequel to The Shining. But that kind of did to, certainly to Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, what, um, you know, Hill House and Bly Manor do to the original novels, which is just like, what if we kind of explained everything and made it really sort of like (laughs) psychological and rule-driven and eventually was like, well, if we just kind of like figure out what the ghosts are doing and then beat them at their own game. uh, But it's interesting because the original Turn of the Screw and, and especially The Innocence, the movie that's based on it is is the governess thinks that she's doing that. She thinks she's figured out the rules. She's like, if I just get Miles to admit that he's being haunted by Peter Quinton, to just say his name, you know, he'll be fine. She finally does get to Miles to say Peter Quint's name, and then Miles immediately dies. Yeah. You knew going in, I mean, I knew from the second they announced this, I'm like, well, he's not going to, obviously going to kill like the 10-year-old boy at the end of the story, but it is, you know, a pretty <laughs> dramatic shift to be like, yeah. actually, you know, they grew up and they got married and now they have American accents and, everything and everything's fine. great. Yeah. Yes. yeah. <laughs> Laura, thank you very much for doing this with me. It's been my pleasure. This has been another Slate Spoiler Special. That's our show. Please subscribe to the Slate Spoiler Special podcast feed. And if you like the show, please rate and review it in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any suggestions for movies or TV shows we should spoil, or if you have any other feedback you'd like to share, please send it to spoilers at slate.com. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan. For Laura Miller, I'm Sam Adams. Thank you for listening. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.